Rewind, your week in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This week on Rewind, your week in review. For the first time, we're learning who's helping Michael Gableman with his election investigation, which includes some Trump allies and conspiracy theorists. Plus, members on the State Elections Commission bash a nonpartisan election audit they say is filled with errors. And the push for tougher bail laws in Wisconsin in wake of the Waukesha Christmas Parade tragedy. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for December 3rd. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Thanks for joining us. Hope you had a great holiday. Uh, everyone who's watching, I hope they had a great Thanksgiving as well. Um, so we had a lot of news this week. When we kind of think it's going to be slowing down, inching yes. closer and closer to the holidays, uh, nothing seems to be letting up when it comes to Gableman's election investigation. But we're learning some new things. For the first time, Gableman, it was his second time testifying, but the first time he's revealing the identity of those who are working on his staff. Some um, are being criticized by Repub or Democrats because some include conspiracy theorists and others who have ties to President Donald Trump. Um, I want to highlight uh, some of them, as you can see on this screen. There's multiple people and the salaries that they're getting paid. Uh, Mr. Andrew Kloster is a former Trump administrative official who has falsely claimed the election was stolen. And then Ron, Ron Hewer, who is the president of the Wisconsin Voter Alliance, and he is um, the president of the organization that uns successfully sued to overturn the presidential election. Now, during this election, assembly election committee, there was some testy exchanges between Gableman and Democrats. Gableman, of course, defending his entire um, probe. Meanwhile, Democrats are just questioning the scope of it. So um, before we hit to the video, Gableman also gave us a new revelation in mm -hmm. his investigation that he is um, going to be asking a judge to issue an order that could lead to Green Bay mayor and the Madison mayor to being jailed unless they testify. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, hear a little bit from Democratic Mark Spritzer and Gableman talking about this new lawsuit. We are ready to move forward with my demand that every government official and every person who took part in administering public elections with Zuckerberg money and Zuckerberg employees now be held to a similar level of transparency so that they may be held accountable. Are you willing to interview Mayor Genrick, Mayor Rhodes-Conway, in public and have the kind of transparency that you claim you're asking for and have them answer questions before the entire public of Wisconsin so that everybody can understand what their role was and what their answers to your questions are. These are the kinds of conditions that the parties generally work out uh, by themselves. Now, you, you are asking whether that is my plan, and currently it is not. Well, I think that lack of transparency is concerning. How can we take your investigation seriously? Don't we need, if, if you think the claims uh, that you're investigating are real, if you are serious about this, shouldn't we bring in somebody who is above partisanship, above reproach? My work and my employees will be judged by one thing, and that is the finished work product. And right now, what is preventing the finished work product is the fearful running and hiding. 
So overall, to summarize this, Gableman is basically trying to say that since he's being a little bit more transparent, now is the time for local election officials um, to start cooperating with him and these mayors that he's called upon uh, to come and meet with him in private, which they have a big issue with. They don't want to meet behind closed doors. They'd rather do it in a public setting like a committee hearing. Yeah. Um, so during the hearing, Galen said that he filed this motion to compel the testimony of the mayors of Green Bay, Milwaukee, or sorry, Green Bay, Madison. But they didn't really tell us like, what they were. I asked them afterward for details about it because they weren't in CCAP, which is the online court record system in Wisconsin. Couldn't find them there. He just said he filed them on Monday. Um, well, when we saw them, he cites a statute that gives a judge the authority to have the sheriff go detain a person and bring that person in and hold them in the jail, uh, county jail, until they testify. So you're talking about the spectacle of the Waukesha County Sheriff, which was filed, going to Green Bay and Madison, grabbing the mayors and bringing them back to Washoe County, holding them in jail until they testify. Now, we have a lot of issues here. Mm -hmm. uh, one, the Green Bay mayor's attorneys says that, look, uh, one, this complaint is so devoid of anything in reality, essentially, that unless you re he rescinds it, we're going to file a uh, complaint against Gableman seeking sanctions for this whole thing. Two, Mo Green Bay says that, look, we told Gableman to contact our private attorneys for any correspondence about this. We sent 20,000 documents to Gableman before, sent a letter saying we think this resolves everything. He then emailed the city attorney at the, basically a wrong address, an, an old address, got caught in spam. They found it a week before the writ was filed. They told him, hey, this happened, and he filed it anyway. So they're saying this is not how you should operate. Madison is saying, We've been up front. We'll come down anytime you want us to, but we want to have a conversation about the um, do it in public before a legislative committee, and we want to have a conversation about what you're going to ask us about so we're prepared. But we'll come down whenever you're ready for us. So how we went from that to this, I'm not quite sure what's going on with that. But it's it's more of the, I don't want to say circus-like atmosphere, but the kind of the drama around this entire thing, right? It's still a question of, okay, where is this going? When's it going to end? And how is he going to land this plane? and so it satisfies people uh, on both sides of the aisle. And we still have these subpoenas that are also mm -hmm. in question because there's a current lawsuit of Attorney General Josh called challenging um, the legality of asking uh, WEC um, Administrator Megan Wolf to come testify. We know that that hearing is scheduled for December 23rd, so those subpoenas are on hold. This isn't technically a subpoena, but he's trying to just find these other workarounds to try and compel Madison and Green Bay to give them more details. But like you mentioned, they're saying, look, we've, we've been trying to work with you. And it would be, I will say, uh, great TV if this actually <laughs> were to come to tuition, if they do, if there is a sheriff that shows up at their doors. But I'm, I'm assuming something will be worked out um, in the next few days. So the hearing is scheduled for the 22nd of December in oh, this writ. Oh, well, this that's one. Oh, yeah. this one. 22nd for this one, 23rd for the uh, champion to squash the subpoenas for the Elections Commission, so Merry Christmas to all of us a uh, week before that. Again, uh, kind of watching how this drama plays out. And they've said, we will come testify and answer your questions, but do it in public. There's a big question here about the extent of the powers of the special counsel. Well, under this law that gives legislative committees the power to go, you know, conduct an investigation. Gableman is acting under the guise of the Assembly Campaign's Elections Committee. His office filed a response to that lawsuit from Call, Josh Call, the Democratic Attorney General, trying to squash that subpoena, saying, we have the authority to do this. This is all in the up and up. And oh, by the way, we don't think that 
uh, Megan Wolf can actually sue us in the first place. So that's going to play out. But again, this draws us into 2022. What's the end date going to be? And we don't know. And no. I will add, though, Gableman, when he was testifying the both times, continues to defend why he wants to meet in private with these officials as he claims that this is an investigation. We don't want to reveal any details. If you look at any other sheriff detective's investigation, they don't usually you know, openly talk about the case until it's closed. So, but, but okay, you're going to finish my sentence there. <laughs> this is, is this a law enforcement it's, then it's activity? Not. It's not. That's yes. the question because mm -hmm. Cole's lawsuit says you don't have the power to do that. There's a separation of powers issue where we're law enforcement, you are the legislature. You can't charge anybody, right? Mm -hmm. You can find information. So, uh, sorry. It's okay. I was, was going to finish it, but yes, the, the, I just like, you know, put it in, putting it out there. That's what he continues to and say of why he wants to. But the other thing is, it's clear it's that it's all about the uh, money from the Mark Zuckerberg funded group mm -hmm. that went to these well, went to 200 cities in Wisconsin or communities, but mostly to these five Democratic cities to help run the election. He's focusing on that. That's really where the crux of this is. Oh, they made some hints about um, voting in nursing homes and right. uh, those kinds of things. Special voting deputies. But that's where the crux right now is these five cities that got this money. Well, that kind of launches off uh, next to our next topic. Speaking of special voting deputies and all of these uh, revelations from a nonpartisan legislative audit, um, uh, the WEC kind of slammed that audit during their hours long, <laughs> hours long. It was 11. very fun to sit through, 11 hours. Um, but they had a lot to cover. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was very highly anticipated that they were finally going to meet. They were finally going to root review this, but they are saying that there are so many errors in this that basically is dwindling people's confidence in the elections if corrections are not made to the audit. So um, when they were meeting, they, they said some of the errors include how the state uses its records from ERIC, which is called the Electronic Registration Information Center, which helps states keep their voter rolls updated. Another one was guidance that WDC issued allowing election officials to adjourn their ballot counting um, on election night. That was something that they approved in October, I want to say, but the audit took an issue with. Um, so let's hear from some of the commissioners themselves calling this audit sloppy and demanding corrections to it. Of all the items in the Legislative Audit Bureau's report, this one was the most egregious example of sloppy work, inaccuracy, and unprofessionalism on the part of the Audit Bureau. The Legislative Audit Committee also was made aware that there were errors, but they chose to have the hearing and probably the only hearing on this audit before we got together and did anything about a formal statement about these errors. If in fact this was nothing more than just a error due to lack of understanding or the like, I, I think almost more egregious than the error and their refusal to share the report with us ahead of time because they decided by themselves that we don't know how to comply with open records or open meetings rules. Um, it's that they still haven't fixed it, even after Megan's testimony about it and the written statements about it. Now, commissioners also approved uh, multiple recommendations 
from the audit that said, hey, take a look at these. These can help mm -hmm. you improve your elections. Now, some include requiring staff just to write up a scope statement that would um, how to use ballot drop boxes. There was uh, another one they weren't able to reach consensus about sending special voting deputies into nursing homes, but they kind of worked their way down through these recommendations. But these are just you know kind of minor votes, so they're sending their staff to do it. Nothing mm -hmm. is in nothing's done, I guess per se, after this meeting um, because Republicans, uh, Senator Steve Noss is already pushing back and kind of demanding them to do more. Yeah, I mean in the Capitol. The Legislative Fiscal Bureau and Audit Bureau are almost like untouchable. Like I rarely hear anybody question either of those two agencies. So to hear both Ann Jacobs, who's a Democratic chair of the, the uh, commission, and Dean Knutson, a former Republican lawmaker um, who wrote the bill that created the Elections Commission, who sues to serve in the Joint Committee for Review, Review of Administrative Rules, to really slam LAB was kind of like an eye-opener a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, now Steve Noss, who's co-chair of JCRAR, is saying, without offering any examples of like specifics, but saying, after watching this, they are so clueless, they're so uncommitted to fixing these things, we're gonna have to act. Well, what's that mean? Remember, the committee can direct uh, an agency to promulgate rules, be in the rulemaking process, to take some action, to submit things to them for review, but what are they gonna submit? They began some of the big things, right? Mm -hmm. On some things, like for example, uh, the Audit Bureau said you should begin the administrative rules process on how to handle election complaints. The agency said, look, we have a administrative rule in, process, in, in place already. However, state law superseded that administrative rule. That state law lays out everything you know about like timing, burden of proof. We don't need an administrative rule because we have it spelled out in state law. So they didn't do that. So what does NAS want to compel them to do that they didn't do? That's the kind of question hanging out there right now about that. And they have to uh, agree on anything that they pass. Obviously, it's a bipartisan commission. A lot of votes uh, landed on 3-3, some, you know, but they, they need to pass these to even get the process whole started. So the big thing, right, one of the big things from the 21 election was filling us the information from witnesses on absentee ballots. So they kind of tussled about that, and Dean Knutson warned them, look, guys, I know you want to keep current advice in place, which is clerks can use available information to fill in missing things like the zip code or like if the city's missing, add that, right? I know you want that, but if you don't move ahead with this rule, you risk the Republican-led legislature coming in and dictating to us what we have to do. Mm -hmm. So if you want to keep this practice in place, we should move forward because always you're risking uh, opening can of worms you don't want to open. And they kind of went, oh, okay, you're right. <laughs> went along with them on that. But again, once that's that scope statement comes back, the parameters of the rule, then it goes to the governor and the legislature. So they'll get their kick of that cat before it's all said and done. I'm kind of watching how that plays out. And, uh, and we'll, we'll touch back on how Republicans are kind of looking to overtake, uh, I guess, more control over WEC in a little bit. But I first want to touch on um, SCOTUS ruling on redistricting. Um, pretty brief, but at least it was some ruling that now we're kind of getting a better uh, close look at what's going to happen or what might happen. Um, they ruled 4-3 that they will make minimum changes necessary to the current maps when it comes to setting up new boundaries for legislative and congressional districts. Now, this was a big win for Republicans. Um, we had uh, uh, most of the justices um, weigh in on this ruling. So I guess, JR, you know, where does this go from here? Because there's a lot of other um, pending you know, challenges yep. out there. So what happens now is all the parties involved in the, in the lawsuit, they'll submit maps to the court, I believe it's on the 15th of December. What the court basically told over this week was, these are your guardrails for your map. If you go outside these guardrails, we're probably gonna pay attention to it. So they're not gonna consider partisanship in the terms of the districts, they're, not gonna, they're gonna make the fewest changes necessary. You submit your map, now they have three options. 
they could just pick one map from the submissions, period, grab a map and tweak it, or they could draw their own map. Um, there have been no signs of a special master, that's what you would call it, to draw a map. So the most likely thing is grab a map or tweak one. The question is who's got the best argument right now, right, mm -hmm. for them. Republicans feel like, hey, we're in a good position because we drew the map in 2011. We argued our 2021 map is a least change approach. However, that's not entirely true. Uh, like we've talked about before, there are two Senate districts in Milwaukee, uh, Dale Kuyenga's seat and Albert Dorn, both Republicans. They went from, for example, Dale Kuyenga's seat was a Biden won it by like 5,000, 6,000 votes in November. It would be a 700 vote Biden margin under the new map that mm -hmm. Republicans drew. Alberta Darling, Biden lost that seat by like 170 votes. It would be like a five or 8,000 vote, you know, like yeah. loss for Biden. Mm -hmm. So those weren't least change necessary. Same time, you have to push and pull on these districts to make them work, so you have that. The big question is what happens after the court picks a map? They have a, a time set aside in January for a possible trial. There's that federal case out there, right? right. Mm -hmm. So now I asked a bunch of lawyers this week, like what could possibly happen? And what they're watching is the court's not gonna try to violate anything under state or federal law, right, to draw the map. However, there's a debate about these minority, minority districts. We talked about this before. Right. Minority opportunity district versus a majority minority district. Democrats likely could make a claim that the Supreme Court map, however it looks, doesn't meet the right standard on the Voting Rights Act. That would give them entry to go to the, to the federal courts. Now there's all kinds of like questions about where they would go as a process. We won't get into that. But even if they got into the federal court and got a change, it'd be minor to whatever the Supreme Court does because you're talking about southeastern Wisconsin. There aren't minority districts in western Wisconsin or right. northern Wisconsin. So even if the federal court stepped in, you're talking minor changes. So whatever map the Supreme Court draws, for the most part, either will stand challenge or will get small tweaks and be in place next year. And we'll see what happens, I yeah. guess, next year in the new year. Redistricting battle is not going anywhere. Um, we also had, uh, I guess, a confirmation, um, official announcement from Representative uh, Loudenbeck as she's going to enter the Secretary of State race. Now, she currently is the vice chair on the Joint Finance, which mm -hmm. is a very powerful position, and now she wants to run for office. And the Clinton Republican, who won her assembly seat in 2010, would be the first pretty high-profile challenger to longtime Democratic incumbent Doug LaFollette. Um, now, her announcement comes, as like I mentioned earlier in the show, as Republicans are kind of ramping up their efforts to take more control over the Wisconsin Elections Commission. Now, they support giving that office a little bit more duties um, over, uh, how, over our electoral pro process. Now, but making any changes to that office would require approval from Governor Tony Evers. But the hidden hidden thing right there is, of course, he's up for re-election. Yeah. So if there is a Republican governor, this adds on to a lot of things we talk on this show. There could be a lot of changes when it comes to who runs the elections and how elections are administered. Just look at the race first. Um, there are three of the Republicans who filed run for Secretary of State. All three besides Loudenbeck have said point blank they want to take over election administration in Wisconsin, period. When I talked to Loudenbeck, she said she's open to things like being more of a check on Elections Commission, like for example, maybe having the Secretary of State serve as a seventh board member mm -hmm. on the commission it would be obviously tilt it from being a split, evenly split partisan board to having a, a little bit of an one party or the other. Maybe checking voter rolls. She said election administration is up to the legislature. If they want to give it to the Secretary of State, she'd be open to it. Interesting about the race is you're talking about the first, possibly first, well-organized, well-funded Republican challenger, Doug LaFollette, in years. 
Doug LaFollette, who raised less than $5,000 in 2018 as yeah. he ran a one eleventh term. So the question I have is, if you have a well-funded, organized candidate in the right environment, looks good for Republicans right now, can you beat the golden name, and I mean the golden name in Wisconsin Poly? LaFollette is like well-known yeah. across the state. Of it course. still carries a lot of weight. And think about it. In these elections, you have U.S. Senate, Governor, Attorney General. By the time you get Secretary of State, do you know People, much about the candidates? Exactly. And right? usually there's not even a, a challenger most of the time. You know, Not a well-funded one or a high-profile exactly. one. Um, so I'm kind of watching to see, first, she has to get the primary, right? These mm -hmm. other guys are a little more adamant about Trump's claims about the 2020 election, but she's going to have a lot of support from GOP establishment because she's a sitting lawmaker, all that kind of good stuff. But then, how's that play out next fall? And oh, by the way, um, this is a stepping stone position, possibly. I mean, think about Sarah Godlewski, right? Mm -hmm. State treasurer was not a big deal for a long time in Wisconsin. Right, until she made it a big deal and made it a big campaign issue. Uh, so now she's running for U.S. Senate. So for Loudenbeck, if she could win, and just, we're talking if right now, if she could win, it could be a stepping stone to something else down the road. It's going to be a surprise if we start seeing ads for Secretary of State, right? <laughs> That's something I, I have not even seen in, throughout my years of, of covering this beat, but you never know. Um, we also kind of put together a slide of candidates kind of either bowing out or entering the race. Um, let's uh, put that up right now. Um, kind of one of the big top-line ones right now is John Mako won't run for governor, saying he doesn't have one big fight left in him. He posted this uh, kind of humorous uh, Facebook uh, yep. post of him talking about this. Now, the decision kind of leaves Rebecca Clayfish as the only high Republican in the race. Also, big question mark, as we've talked about him plenty of times on the show, is Kevin Nicholson. Um, is he going to be waiting for Senator Ron Johnson to say if Ron Johnson is going to run or not, or is he going to make his decision to go into the governor's race? Um, you also had some other ones on here, Jr. that I'll let you kind of weigh in a little bit. Jake Curtis passed on the AG race. Um, Wausau Mayor, uh, she opted out against a bid for lieutenant governor. So uh, first with governor, you still got to you know, keep in mind Sean Duffy's name was floated by former President Trump for governor. I've heard nothing from Duffy World since that yeah. happened. So it's been a while too. It since looks we really unlikely. Mm -hmm. um, you can't forget Eric Hovde. There are some names floating out there. Um, Van Mobley is a southeastern Wisconsin like village president, big Trump supporter. He's talking about it for governor. But at this point, Clayfish is still the most organized, kind of put together, high profile Republican in the race. For AG, with Curtis saying no, and he's a first lieutenant in the Air Wisconsin Air National Guard. McSinnon leave this spring, said, I can't do this with my family and my mm -hmm. service there. Well, leaves Eric Tony's in for sure. He is a Fond du Lac County DA, has been harshly criticized by some Republicans for filing charges and dropping them over the state home order governor was issued during the outset of, of the pandemic. That's like a red flag for some conservatives. They'll never forgive him for that. You have Adam Jarko, former state lawmaker. Um, he got into the race, but mostly to kind of torment Eric Tony. He doesn't really want to be Attorney mm -hmm. General but he does not want Tony to become the GOP nominee. Well, now Jarko has to think about it, and he told me he's going to think about it the next week or so and figure things out. He's, you know, very conservative, very vocal on social very, media. Very vocal on social media, I was just about to say. Mm -hmm. Never been a prosecutor. That last thing is an issue because you don't have that background that voters seem to like. Now, there's this, there's this movement among the conservative legal community in Wisconsin and nationally away from the top cop model for attorney general toward a quote-unquote top lawyer. They want somebody who's going to fight about individual rights, take on these big issues with the Biden administration, that model. Which is interesting because the voters haven't shown a willingness to go there yet. They like prosecutors for, D, for AG, 
fact, I, I like judges for Supreme Court. So I'm watching to see if you can make that argument next fall. And oh, by the way, if it's a good enough environment for Republicans in 2022, it might not matter your resume because it might be a big enough wave that mm -hmm. carries you through. Now, the LG's race, uh, Katie Rosenberg, uh, the mayor from Wausau, kind of a rising star among progressives. Um, she hadn't really been talking about running, but people had kicked around her name for a while, saying she'd be a great candidate. With her out, at least three Milwaukee area Democrats in the race for sure. Sarah Rodriguez, uh, state representative. David Bowen, a state rep from Milwaukee. And state Senator Lena Taylor. There's also talk about the Wauwatosa mayor, McBride. He's thinking about running. Others have thrown their names out there, but not committed yet. So it looks like it's going to be a southeastern Wisconsin candidate running with Tony Evers as of right now mm -hmm. next year. Uh, all right. And then uh, this actually, the next topic we're going to talk about happened last week. But since we didn't have a show, we thought it'd be re we'd recap it right now because um, it's gaining some traction. And what I'm talking about is Republicans are pushing for tougher bail laws in wake of the Waukesha Christmas tragedy. Uh, State Representative Cindy Ducho, Duco excuse me, mm -hmm. um, from Delafield reintroduced this constitutional amendment that would basically remove restrictions judges currently face when it comes to setting bail. Now, it would basically allow judges to consider how dangerous a defendant might be to the public when determining how much that bail should be. A judge would also be able to set no bail to keep someone behind bars. Now, some Democrats, um, I spoke to Representative Evan Goyke last week about this, and he has previously, previously opposed this measure. I believe it was in 27, the first time Duco rep, uh, proposed this on the floor. It didn't go anywhere. Um, and his argument is that while he agrees Brooks, uh, Daryl Brooks, excuse me, who I'm talking talking about he is the man accused of, of plowing through uh, the parade and killing six and injuring dozens. Um, Goyke says that he agrees Brooks should have never been let out on bail, but he doesn't fully support Republicans' approach. And why, as I'll read his quote, is a higher cash bail could have resulted in Mr. Brooks being held and prevented and we could have prevented this tragedy in Waukesha, but maybe it wouldn't because if you have money and you can post bail, then you're out even if you are dangerous. Now, Governor Evers also agreed with um, the similar approach that yes, Daryl Brooks should not have been let out on jail. Um, and let's hear from the governor too about how he's kind of looking at this case as well because all the centers around the Milwaukee DA setting extremely low bail, I shouldn't say extremely, I, his words were very low bail, um, only at $1,000, which he was released just three weeks before the tragedy. Let's hear from Governor Evers. It's just obvious to everybody in this room that uh, he should not have been out on bail. So we are, uh, we're, we are working with uh, the, uh, the county, the district attorney to uh, you know, investigate what's happening. Uh, we've asked him to consider several items uh, during his investigation so that we can make uh, uh, make sense of things going forward. Uh, it's um, something that, you know, just should not have happened, And um, but we have to make sure that we get, get it right going forward. Uh, so, after this uh, all happened, we're kind of seeing these Republican proposals, but at the same time, uh, this week, Democrats also introduced a slew of gun safety measures and a bill uh, that some Democrats are calling the Rittenhouse gun loophole. Um, let's pull up the slide because I'll just quickly summarize some of these because we're running out of time. Some of the Democratic proposals include requiring businesses to sell guns 
if they do so, they want them to secure them when the business is unattended, give customers a secure lockable container or trigger lock when they purchase a gun, and creating a reporting system for lost or stolen guns, which would have to be reported within 24 hours. Some of these proposals we've seen in the past, they're not going anywhere. I say that because Republican resistance. Um, and I just want to briefly highlight the other um, legislation that was introduced by a group of Democrats from Kenosha, uh, the one I mentioned about closing this Rittenhouse loophole. Basically what it would do, it'd be a very minor uh, clarity change to state law regarding the possession of a weapon by a person who is under 18. This this kind of comes in lieu of Rittenhouse as the size of the barrel of his gun. Mm -hmm. uh, the judge dismissed that charge because it was just a few inches shorter. So they dropped that charge. So this bill would actually just only allow a minor to possess a long gun if they are legally and actively hunting. Um, I spoke to Senator Patrick Teston about this bill yesterday. He thinks there might be some issues when it comes to, hey, I go to school and I participate in a school rifle club. Am I not going to be able to bring my long gun to school and shoot um, and have target practice? So there's that. But also, once again, we know Republicans' resistance here is, you know, this might infringe on Second, Am Second, Second Amendment rights. We're not going to touch those bills. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> Absolutely. I took care of that one, JR. Let's just get the stock picks. Um, first one, rising Derek Van Oren. So look, uh, with the Supreme Court's least change approach, it answers a big question, or almost answers a big question about the third congressional district. Which is what's it going to look like? We've talked before about this. Democrats know if that district stays the same or gets more Republican, they have a tough fight in their hands. It's been trending Republicans' way. Trump won it by two point like six or seven points in 2016, almost five points in 2020. Least change means that district stays mostly like it is. That means Derek Van Orden's combination of a 50-50 at worst district, um, a good Republican environment as of right now, and he's raised $1.8 million since the start of this year. Those are all good things for him. Mm -hmm. um, Democrats' best hope right now is to disqualify him somehow as a candidate. He was at the protest that preceded the violent insurrection at the Capitol. Um, he says he didn't go on Capitol grounds. There's some debate about that, but he wasn't in the Capitol, as far as we know. Um, he had a blow-up with a, a, a librarian in Prairie du Chien, some things like this. Try and make him seem like he's unfit for office. But look, the guy's got a good team. He's got a very solid conservative message. The district's running his way. He's in good shape right now for that seat, as of right now. As of right, I was just yeah. going to say. You never know what can happen. Yeah. Uh, and then you got mixed this week, Lori Kornblum. She is a basically snagged this appointment for the second district court of appeals. Yeah, so this seat had been open for a while. A long time, yeah. Well, it actually comes open on January 3rd. Uh, mm -hmm. The incumbent is retiring. Um, Evers had extended the application window. It kind of caught people's attention because, right. like, well, why wouldn't you want that job? Well, right. Jeff Davis got Evers' appointment to the second district court of appeals and lost this past spring by 11 points to Shelley Grogan. So the idea is it, it's a tough district for Democrats, right? Cornbloom. Uh, uh, is uh, in private practice right now. She spent 20 years in DA's office in Milwaukee County, so that's a plus for her. But you're talking a very conservative uh, appeals court district. Can you find a path to win that seat knowing that you're Evers' appointee? Because Shelley Grogan against Jeff Davis. Jeff Davis was no, by no means a real Democrat. I mean, he was kind of Republican, really. Um, Shelley Grogan ran ads saying you can't trust a Milwaukee liberal appointed by Tony Evers. Like that was part of her campaign message. So for Cornbloom, you got to figure out how do you navigate this. Maria Lazar, a Waukesha County Circuit Court judge, she is running for the Second Court of Appeals already. Um, so it's going to be a tough road for Cornbloom. Maybe there's a chance, maybe there's a path, but 
get the uh, player cards right to get there. And uh, we talked about this just a little bit ago. Um, falling this week is the Milwaukee DA, who's under pretty hot water for uh, putting out a very low low yeah. bail for Dale Brooks. I just want to keep the politics over here about this whole issue. I mean, obviously, it's a tragedy, mm-hmm. and you can't say that enough. There's also a political angle to it, right? I mean, Chisholm went before Milwaukee County Board Committee yesterday and said, well, look, this, this kind of lowly, and I'm put, kind of paraphrasing, mm-hmm. this inexperienced, you know, assistant DA, she didn't have this and that. And we have this big backlog was another thing that they talked about. It's not even the, the best look. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a, a mistake like this, own up to it. People tell me, find a way to fix it and move forward. By saying, well, here's all my excuses, you're not really owning the issue. Now, the question is, with Chisholm, it's a very democratic county. Um, we've seen conservatives try and challenge Chisholm before with a, for lack of a fake Democrat. You know, the person put up against him last time was put up by the people who were unhappy about the John Doe investigation and some other things and tried to, like, run a Democrat, really conservative, to beat Chisholm. Didn't work out. So if Chisholm were to run again, a democratic county, like, how do you beat him? Well, then you have Rebecca Clayfish, who's saying if she's elected governor, she would fire mm-hmm. Chisholm. That's an interesting tack because once you open that door to moving people from office with the power that you know, the governors have, how do you close it? And what line do you draw? Mm-hmm. That's besides the point. Chisholm's in a very difficult position right now politically. The question is how does he get out of it and is there a way out of it for him? Yeah, and we'll see if he keeps talking about this too because it's not an issue that's not going to go anywhere because a lot of us have been thinking about those families and those who are at that parade. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that will do it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Take care. We'll see you next week. Rewind, Your Week in Review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.